Good morning, church. My name is Wade, and as we were going through the um, this confession from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, I was struck by this this phrase in there that said that this Sabbath is a day of rest. And as we come before the Word today, we should have that attitude that we're resting. This is not us trying to do more for the Lord. Um, when we come before the Lord, it's always Him giving to us. When we when we're when he gives us the word, it's him feeding us. It's not us laboring to suck something out, but it's God giving us what we need. And uh, I hope that this is our approach, that we are beggars that God is happy to give to. We can rest. Uh, this should not be a tiring thing for us. We can rest knowing that God is for us. He is on our side. He's, he's going to give us what we need. So with that, we're going to approach the, the word today. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of John for the past two and a half years. I, I looked this up on our website. Um, we began 2017, um, and we're almost done. 2018, I think. Um, we're almost done with the Gospel of John. We plan on finishing up the Gospel uh, by the end of the year. Last week, Pastor Michael spoke on the resurrection of Jesus. And today, we're going to look at the next portion of this story. So, in this story, this is Sunday and Jesus has been dead since Friday. And John 20 begins with Mary Magdalene finding out that the tomb is empty. And then she goes to tell Peter and John that the tomb is empty. And on that report, the three of them, they go to the tomb to find out that the body of Jesus is no longer there. So the passage ends with the three of them going home. And then we go to our passage today. This is uh, verse 11 of John 20. And uh, we're going to read it, verses 11 through 18. You can follow along in your bulletin, or if you have a uh, Bible, go ahead and do that. John chapter 20, verse 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid them, laid him. Having said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God. In our time together, I want us to look at how Mary is changed by the resurrected Christ. And we have three points today. The first is this, Mary in mourning. This is in your bulletin, Mary at the mercy seat and Mary the messenger. Mary in mourning, Mary at the mercy seat and Mary the messenger. I don't usually make it a point to use alliteration in my notes, but it worked out nicely for today's passage. So that's what I'm going with. 
So as we look at the passage today, I want us to consider how the fact that Jesus is resurrected should profoundly change us. It changed the way that Mary viewed Jesus, how she viewed death and grief, and it changed her purpose in life. And if we come face to faith, face with Jesus as the resurrected Christ, maybe it will change us as well. So that's my goal today for us to see Jesus as he is and that we would be changed by that. So our first points, Mary in mourning. I mentioned a couple months ago that in the Gospel of John, there are certain times that he, that the author, he uses this uh, a threefold repetition to emphasize something. Uh, he mentions something three times. Well, I guess that would be a twofold repetition. In chapter twenty, there are two things that are mentioned in three mentioned three times. So this goes back to Pastor Michael's passage in uh, that he went over last week. Mary visits the tomb three times. So if you if you look at the passage starting in verse twenty, uh, verse one. It begins with Mary visiting the tomb of Jesus for the third time in a few hours, or this is our passage today. Last week's passage tells us that she visited the grave of Jesus on her own. That's one time. And then again with Peter and John, that's two times. And in verse 11, we're told that she visits the tomb once again. That's three times. There should be a a uh, focus on the fact that Jesus, that Mary has gone to the tomb of Jesus three times. And then there is her weeping. Three times in this passage today, it's mentioned that she's weeping. Verses 11, 13, and 15. So here is Mary in her grief. The grief of Mary, of Mary Magdalene is meant to be front and center in this passage. The author wants us to feel the sadness and the sorrow of Mary. To understand why Mary was racked with grief, it helps for us to know her story. In the other Gospels, we're given a description of what she was like. She was an outcast that was afflicted by demons. And for years, she was shunned by society. She was tormented by demons. And then Jesus comes to her. Jesus had mercy on her and he cast the demons out. No one had ever seen Mary the way that Jesus saw her. No one had ever shown her such tenderness and compassion and love. Because she encountered Jesus, she was irreversibly changed. Jesus saved her life. He gave her hope that something good could come out of the worst circumstances. Because that's what happened when Jesus touched her. Mary Magdalene, profoundly, irreversibly changed And she followed Jesus for the rest of his time on earth. She was there when he was tortured. She watched him as he was nailed to the wood of the cross. She watched the life drain from his body. She watched as he breathed his last breath. And after Jesus had died, Mary, along with Jesus' mother, She watched Joseph and Nicodemus claim his body and they followed them into the the garden tomb on Friday to help with the burial. And that brings us to today, here, Mary in the garden. She's been living with the grief of losing Jesus since Friday. And you can imagine that she's been crying and crying and crying until she can cry no more. 
She hasn't slept. She hasn't eaten. And when she's able, she cries again. And then again, grieving has become a way of life for her. This is all she knows now. When she breathes, she breathes in sorrow. When she exhales, she exhales a sigh of sadness. So she goes to the tomb. The first time she went to the tomb, it was to tend to the body of Jesus, to burn incense in a tomb that was filled with the stench of decaying flesh, to wash and perfume the body of Jesus, to wrap it properly. And maybe she could even caress the face of Jesus one last time. This is why she goes to the tomb. And I want to pause right here to give us a chance to think about grief, for us to meditate on what it means to grieve. If you've ever felt grief, you might resonate with with this picture of Mary. She's overwhelmed by the loss of something that she's loved. And we've all felt this, or we will soon enough. Here is Mary Magdalene. She's desperate for comfort, but she's found none. When we're in grief, we want to do something, anything that will give us some type of relief. Because we're living with the knowledge that what we love will never come back to us. If this idea of grief is foreign to you, then hold on. Because it's coming It might be next week, it might be 10 years or 20 years from now, but it's coming. One day we will feel the grief that Mary did. Because loss and grief and mourning are written into the story of every man and woman that will ever live. This is grief. And I hope we don't take the inclusion of Mary's story for granted. In the Bible, we're given stories like her and countless others who are filled with fear and sadness and despair. We're given these stories to let us know that we are not alone. And when Jesus, when God gives us this story of Mary, he's saying something to us in these stories. He's saying, you are not alone. So let's return to Mary. In last week's passage, she she left to retrieve a couple of the disciples when she saw that Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb. And now she's returned to the tomb again. And now on top of losing, on, on top of grieving the loss of her friend, she's weeping because his body has been lost. This is what she came here for, to tend to the body. And now it's gone. This is sadness upon sadness. The text tells us that there are three figures that talk to Mary. There are the two angels and there is a man that she thinks is a gardener. Gardener. She asked, they asked her, why are you weeping, Mary? And this is meant to direct us to the significance of the tears of Mary. Mary is weeping because the tomb is empty. Let me say that again. Mary is grieving because she can't find the body of Jesus in the tomb. Think about that. The tomb is empty. The fact that Mary is grieving, this might sound strange to us. Because for us, we celebrate the fact that the tomb is empty. 
But how could Mary have known this? She doesn't know until a man comes up to her. She thinks that it's the gardener. He inquires about her weeping. Who are you seeking? Now this man, he knows the answer. But he asks because he wants her to come to the realization herself. And in those few seconds between the question, how she must have been so confused and then bewildered and then shaken by this impossible joy that her friend is not dead. Jesus says her name, Mary. She went from mourning the empty tomb to rejoicing because the tomb was empty. And this is it for her. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. The reason you and I are here today is because Jesus is alive. This is the same reason that we can rejoice. Last week in our call to worship, Jeff Murray took us through parts of 1 Corinthians 15. You might remember this passage in the call to worship. It said, If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we of all people are to be most pitied because we've staked our lives on the fact that the resurrection is true. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you guys are wasting your time here at San Felipe Park or watching on YouTube if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But what if this is true? What Mary saw with her own eyes tells us that it is. We can rejoice because the tomb is empty. And this is what everyone, everything hinges on, that the tomb is empty. Now, think of Mary. She, she, before she saw Jesus face to face again, before he called her name out, she very reasonably thought that the crucifixion of Jesus was the end for him. That whatever he started in his earthly ministry, that it came to an end on that Friday. This is what all the disciples thought. They were hiding in the upper room. Because he thought, our leader is dead. What are we going to do now? Because death is permanent. There is no coming back when the heart stops beating and when the blood runs cold and the flesh decomposes. Completely reasonable to think that that was the end of Jesus. But Mary hears her name. And the resurrection flips our understanding of reality on its head. The resurrection means that the impossible can happen. The impossible can happen. We exist, IGC exists because the impossible can happen. And because the impossible did happen. This is what you've given your life to if you are a Christ follower. That the impossible is possible but let us not forget that there was also a saturday in the story there was a saturday between the death of jesus on friday and his resurrection on sunday it means that there was a time of mourning for mary there was a time of uncertainty there was a time even for despair there was a time when god let mary be plunged into sadness And what that means for us is that we should not minimize the pain that we feel or the pain that others feel when they're feeling sorrow. 
it means that we need to give ourselves and others the time and space to grieve and mourn and lament. This is a part of life. Do not try to stifle it. Read the book of Job. Read the Psalms. Read Ecclesiastes. Read John 11 when even Jesus himself wept. But if the resurrection is true, then this is not the end. If Jesus rose from the dead, we can live out the words of Paul. Do you remember what he says? He says that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This is the two, these are the two tensions that we live in. We live in a world full of sorrow. The song we sang earlier, uh, Is He Worthy? Do you feel the wor- world is broken? We do. I do. But do you believe that this is not all there is? Jesus rose from the dead and the resurrection means that our tears are temporary. It means that we can grieve as we should, but not as those without hope. And if we are in Christ, we have a hope that one day our suffering will not only end but our suffering will actually make sense. One day every tear will be wiped away. This is the promise in Revelation. The same way that Mary's tear-clouded eyes were opened to the risen Christ, so will our eyes. Do you believe this? You can because the tomb is empty. And what is the cause And what was cause for mourning is now cause for eternal hope. This tomb that is now empty. How is this possible? What does it look like? I want to point out another detail in this text that uh, is not included in the other Gospels. Um, If if we look at the Gospel of John, I've I've mentioned before, it has all these rich, tiny, tiny details that clue us into what's happening. When Jesus speaks Mary's name, she mistakes him as a gardener. And this isn't incidental. John includes this detail to clue us into how the grief of Mary is being transformed. You might remember when Jesus was arrested. Where was he arrested? The Garden of Gethsemane. When what happened in chapter 18, when that happened in chapter 18, we're being pointed to the first garden in Genesis. And what happened in the first garden? In the first garden, the curse of sin and death fell on the world when Adam and Eve believed the lie of the serpent and ate from the tree. That's Genesis 3. And then John 18 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here is another garden in which the curse that fell on mankind is starting to be lifted. Adam was the first gardener. And his disintegrating work in Genesis begins reversing in the garden. In the garden, Jesus begins reintegrating all things. And Mary doesn't understand it when she mistakes, when she makes this uh, seeming mistake. She thinks that Jesus is just a gardener. But now we know he's not just a gardener. Jesus is the gardener. Adam was given the charge to cultivate the garden in Genesis, but he failed. But Jesus is a second gardener. Jesus fulfilled the demands of God and he 
became the gardener that Adam could not believe. And Jesus here, he's standing as a second and final gardener who's tending to his new creation. There's a garden in Genesis 3. And then there is a garden in John 18. And here we are again, John 20, another garden. And this is how the morning of Mary can be transformed. Everything sad is becoming untrue. Death no longer needs to be final. And this is the truth of the resurrection. So IGC, you can mourn, you can be sad, you should be. But know that this is not the end of it. Our second point, Mary at the mercy seat. So John includes a detail of the tomb that isn't included in the other Gospels. If you look at verse 12, it tells us that Mary, she, she ducked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white. One at the head and one at the feet of where the body of Jesus had lain. And why, why this detail seems a little bit odd. Many of the Jewish hearers of John's gospel, when they, when they heard this image given, they would have immediately had another image in their head. An image of one of the most important objects of their faith. In the book of Exodus, God tells the Israelites to build the Ark of the Covenant. You might remember this, the Ark of the Covenant. This is where the tablets with the commandments were placed, along with a pot of manna and the rod of Aaron. And then the Ark was covered by something called the mercy seat. And on either end of the mercy seat was an angel. And the Ark was placed in the Holy of Holies for the Israelites. And the mercy seat is where God would meet his people. There is nothing more sacred than this in their faith. So Mary, she sees the two angels and without speaking, their position indicates something that she could not have imagined in her wildest dreams. That the place where Jesus' body lay was the new mercy seat. The tomb was the new holy of holies. The presence of God was here. In the Old Testament, an atoning sacrifice had to be made in order for the people of God to approach God. A sacrifice had to be made on behalf of the people for their sins. You can approach God. Anyone can approach God. But you would fall dead as soon as you saw him. As soon as you came close to his presence. If you wanted to approach God, a price had to be paid. And that, that price was the very blood, the very life of a creature. And the tomb is where the saving power of God and his, his holy and his terrible presence is made known. It's where the atoning sacrifice was presented. And the symbolism of this scene here in the garden is that Jesus himself is the atoning sacrifice that's necessary for man to approach God. And he occupies that mercy seat. And the gospel is that we were all created to know God and to enjoy him forever. That's what it means for us to be in his presence. Quorum Deo, this Latin phrase, before the face of God. But because he is a holy God, he cannot look upon sin. And what is sin? Sin is anything that we do in an attempt to live outside of his will for us, his good will for us. When we try to create an identity apart from him, 
when we try to live our lives apart from him, when we don't acknowledge his rule over us, this is what sin is. And that's what we do. And left to ourselves, we could never be in the presence of God because of this sin. No sinner could stand before the holy God and live. And it could have been that way. But this is what the scriptures teach us. That God loves his people. He loved us so much that he would not let it stay that way. He sent Jesus to live the life that we could not live. To die the death we should have died. He became the atoning sacrifice so that we could enter the presence of God. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice that we need. But not only that, Jesus is the one who occupies the mercy seats. There's another name for the mercy seat now. It's called the throne of grace. We see this in Hebrews 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So Mary, in entering the tomb, she enters the Holy of Holies, the new Holy of Holies, and she approaches the mercy seats. She approaches the throne of grace. And here's where I get the title for the sermon. Mary enters the garden where the tomb was in grief. She enters the tomb and what does she find? She finds grace. Grace in the garden. Now this means that the empty tomb doesn't only mean that Jesus has defeated death. And it doesn't just mean that we too will one day be resurrected, although this is true. It means that we have something far better than just resurrected bodies. It means that we have the very presence of God. We have the grace of God. And what is life if we don't have this? You and I have sinned, we've offended our Creator, we've failed and we've messed up in ways that we cannot fix. And what will God require of you when you approach him? Sinner, what is God going to require of you? He won't require anything of you. Nothing. Because Jesus has paid all that's required on your behalf. And we need only to repent and trust in him. And when we read in Hebrews that there is a throne of grace, it means this that he delights to pour out his grace on you. It brings him such joy and happiness and delight and pleasure to show you mercy. God doesn't do these things begrudgingly. He loves to dispense grace and mercy for his people. So we can draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need do you need his mercy then draw near do you need his grace then draw near are you in a time of need then draw near to the throne of grace to this mercy seat Jesus is present he is here
our final point, Mary the messenger. There's a type of whiplash in chapter 20 of John. Mary goes from watching her friend die to the nonstop grieving of his loss to even more grief when she realizes that his body is not in the tomb. She goes from that to Jesus speaking her name in the flesh. And the joy she feels is overwhelming. The text doesn't tell us exactly what she does. But we know that she tries to hold on to Jesus in some manner. Maybe she lunged forward to give him a hug. Maybe she fell down at his feet and hugged his feet and ankles. We're not sure. But he says something unexpected. Look at verse 17. He says, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me, woman. Why does Jesus say this? It seems like something harsh to say to someone who's gone through so much already. Someone who loves Jesus with such intensity. Do not cling to me. Why does Jesus say that? This is the reason why. Up until this point, Mary has been relating to Jesus as a man with primarily an earthly and physical presence. But now the resurrected Jesus is much more than that to her. He says, I'm going to ascend to my father. And soon Mary will no longer be with him physically. But he's going to give the spirit to his people to carry out the mission that he's given and he says, Mary, I have something to, to, I have an assignment for you. Tell my brothers what I've seen. Tell my people what you've witnessed with your eyes. Jesus appoints this woman to be the first messenger of the resurrection. And this will define her life for the rest of her life. Her purpose is not to enjoy the earthly comforts of love and health and relationships and whatever else people employ to enjoy their time here. There's nothing wrong with those things, that, but that is no longer her primary purpose. Mary's given a new purpose to tell others of this risen Christ, that what Jesus said is true, that what he did really happened, that he is life and light, and that you can stake your life on him because he's no longer dead. Mary, tell them that you've seen the Lord. This is her new mission. But she's also given a new identity. Notice how deliberate Jesus is with his words. He says, I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. And this is the first time that Jesus explicitly includes others in his relationship with God the Father. My Father is your Father. Your God is my God. Because of Jesus' reconciling work on the cross, we can relate to the Father the same way that Jesus does. Jesus is our Master. He's our Savior, but He's also our Brother. So we're not just messengers of the news of Jesus. We also belong to his family. And so it is with us, Indelible Grace Church. We've all been given this task as a family to make the name of Christ known in the East Bay and beyond. 
for those of us here at San Felipe Park, for those of you watching on YouTube right now, we are a family. We are a family. Our mission is to together follow Jesus and to help others follow Jesus. We are not left to ourselves. And I will repeat what Michael, Pastor Michael spoke weeks ago, that if you have not reached out to someone in our church, do it. We have so many people in our church family who are still isolated, who still have not heard from their brothers and sisters in the church. We're given a new identity here. Christ is risen and this changes everything. Christ is risen and this changes everything. I want to end this time with a description of the post-resurrection Mary, the changed Mary, the altered Mary, the one who will never be the same. This is a, a dis- short description by an author by the name of Walt Wangerin or Wangerin. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Here's a description of Mary from Magdala. He is alive and so is she alive and more than that he has a job for her to do see Miriam has become the first servant of the newly risen Jesus Miriam that once bore evil spirits here and there now bears the good news of the Lord go to my brother he says tell them that I am returning to my father and your father to my God and your God and she has torn the veil from round her face this veil of mourning It streams behind her as she runs and her mouth is open and she is singing and the song precedes her where she goes. I have seen, says Miriam from Magdala. I've seen the Lord. I've heard his voice. Attend his word, O nations, and rejoice. Indelible Grace Church, we know the risen Christ. Everything changes in light of this. And what do we have to offer the world but the gospel of Jesus? What else would we want to offer? So may we be like Mary and know that the Lord, may we know the Lord the way that she knew him, full of love and tenderness and compassion. May we understand our own condition before him, the same way that she understood hers, sinful and in need of grace, in need of mercy, helpless, without hope, unless Christ is risen from the dead. May we know him as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. May we know Jesus as the one who dispenses grace freely and his mercy freely from his throne of grace. May we know and see and experience the Lord and may the truth of the resurrection, may this move us to tell our friends and our families and our communities that Christ is risen. He is not dead. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Will you pray with me? Father, what an amazing thing it is that we worship a man who who died on the cross and yet he did not stay there. He entered, he, he entered the tomb and he did not stay there either. But our Lord is risen. And I pray that our lives, individually, personally, our lives in our families, our lives in the context of this church and in this community would reflect the fact 